Tyron Mowbray is a men's health and sexuality mentor. He specifically works with men around masculinity, relationships and sexuality. I was attached to the money for significance. So being able to go to the pub and buy whatever I wanted and shout people drinks and buy nice clothes for my girlfriend or for myself or whatever, I became attached to that lifestyle. And the moment I couldn't do that, it was just this constant, you're not good enough. He merges consciousness, embodiment and spirituality into easy, digestible, practical exercises and rituals so that men can bring sacredness and passion to every area of their lives. I'm leaving, I already booked my flight and on the last weekend of my time in Australia, I still bought a, an eight ball of MDMA and snorted most of it and got fucked up, you know? And then flew into Munich for Oktoberfest, my first thing. I was sober for two day, three days, two days, and on my third day, drank five steins, got so drunk I shit my pants in my hostel. He helps men break down their walls and barriers of self-criticism and eliminate shame around their natural, healthy, masculine expression. That story still fucking breaks me every time. Before we begin today's episode, I would really appreciate a review on whatever podcast platform you are listening to this on. This helps to get the message out there to men and therefore encourage and inspire them to level up their life. So without further ado, this is the Modern Warrior Podcast. I am your host, Gavin Meenan. Thank you for tuning in. Tyron, so what do I need to know about the type of childhood you had to gain a better understanding as to the type of adulthood you live today? Mm, great question to start off with, Gavin. Um, yeah, I mean, I considered my childhood to be pretty regular, to be honest. Like, I didn't think there was that much um, different. Um, I mean, a couple of experiences, but ultimately, you know, my mum and dad are pretty traditional English folks. You know, my dad's from Liverpool, my mum's from London. They came over when they were three or four, you know, their, their parents migrated to Australia. So pretty, pretty, um, I wouldn't say strict, but just like, you know, very English dated, you know, the man does this, the woman does this, you know, the woman cooks pretty much all the food. Um, my, my, my dad looks after outside the house, you know, we always wash the dishes, the men wash the dishes, the women, the women cooked the food, you know, um, the women clean the house, but gen men were generally tidy and we, you know, we fixed the things around the house. So it was a very traditional roles as far as growing up, you know, um, dad loved a beer, you know, he was like, a, he was an English soccer hooligan that grew up in Australia, basically as my best, you know, summarization, um, you know, like he was the rock of our family you know, in many, many ways and still is, but sometimes rocks are a pain in our fucking ass, you know, like they're immovable. And that was kind of, that was very much how he was, you know, he was like, he, I am me and I will be me and I'm not going to apologize to anyone and you will deal with it. And, and predominantly he knew he had bad habits and it was very much do as I say, not as I do, you know? Um, and mum was very compassionate and loving and caring and hyper emotional and hypersensitive and you know, so they were, they were two there. Yeah, that's why they were attracted to each other, right? They represented the opposites very, very well. Um, and other than that, you know, I grew up country, South Australia, you know, with the last train, the last town on the train line from the city, um, you know, very close to the bush, very close to, you know, farmland and outback Australia to some extent. Um, I, I went to a public slash private school, like it was a private school. 
as far as, you know, we wore uniforms and it was a bit, you know, we had, it cost a little bit more money than a private, than a public school, but it was very much government funded. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't one of the real upper class schools. My parents worked hard. They both worked very hard. Um, and you know, I grew up out there playing sport and, and riding BMX and getting dirty and, you know, just be being free, very free. Um, but with that obviously comes still all of the, because of the traditional gender roles of like, to, to be a man is this. And so I spent a lot of time trying to fit into that, that gender role of masculinity or what it is to be a man and be strong. And my dad showcased, you know, no emotion unless it was anger or, or, you know, and so that was the emotion that was welcome as a man, but softness and sensitivity wasn't. And so, yeah, you know, just spent a long time doing that, but I've very much got my mother's heart, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very soft and gentle and compassionate and caring. And so I was always torn in this conflict of be the man, play football, get the girls, get drunk, do the debauchery things. And also this little thing inside of me or not so little thing inside of me, it was just just wanted to be loved all the time and wanted to be soft and gentle when it was like I was torn and I had to pick one. And obviously being a man, I wanted to pick the the masculine one. And so I just went down that path and completely shut out this other part of me, which ultimately led to me having a breakdown at 28 because I didn't like the man that I was. I was denying a huge part of me. So what happened then at 20? Yeah, so I... I my girlfriend left me at 26. I had the bikies show up at my my house a few times and kick the door in and come and threaten to to you know take me away because they wanted things that I had. Um, she didn't feel safe, so she left. Which fair enough, you know. So that I wasn't creating a safe space for a family or for a partner. So I you know hold no hold no um, resentment there. Just go back there. So they were breaking down your door. Why? So, um, you know, uh, again, growing up, it was like the more money I had, the more successful I was, you know, and my family didn't have a great deal of money growing up. Like, sure, I went to a nice school, but my parents worked really fucking hard to send me there so much so that I missed them a lot at my football games and sports things. You know, they, they didn't, they couldn't be a large part of my life growing up because they were always working to pay for the school and the house and the stuff. So, you know, they were, they were normal people working really hard. And obviously with that comes their own stresses. Um, and so, you know, a large part of me is like, if I have more money, then I can, I feel more successful and that creates a state of abundance, which makes me mean, means I'm done well as a man. And also I'll be able to give my family if I, when I have one, the things that, you know, I never had. Um, and so there was a lot of attachment to money being success. And so I was doing things for money that was not legal or ethically correct, you know, um, predominantly around drugs. And so ultimately, you know, first it started selling a few pills and it started growing weed and then it turned into other things very quickly. And when the bikies found out what I was doing and how much I had, they, you know, they don't come and just go, oh, hey, I think you shouldn't be doing that. They're just like, give me what you have. Give us what you have. It's no longer yours, you, you know. And so that's what it was. That's what it entailed, basically. In a nutshell, that's that's the short, the short form story of it. So you had a woman in the middle of, all of that yeah yeah so and you know she was an amazing woman to be honest like she was there when i got busted by the cops growing marijuana the first time um and you know loved me through that and said okay we well, you know i still love you and let's let's you know i still love you um 
And it wasn't like I didn't have money. I had a good job. I earned good cash, but it was still this addiction to more. Like I needed more in order to feel content or successful or happy or whatever. You know, no matter how many cars I had, no matter what what houses we had, I wanted a bigger one. I wanted a faster one. I wanted a newer one. Um, and and that need for more was fueled by a massive insecurity of not being good enough. Um, and so, yeah, you know, like it, it didn't, and I didn't want it in 10 years. I wanted it now. And that was also the other part. It was like, it's not that the desires are bad. It's the attachment to the, that's what's going to make me happy. And also the need for it this minute. And so I'll do whatever is necessary rather than, um, follow a process. You know, there are hundreds, well, there's what, tens of thousands of millionaires around the world and they all do it legally, mostly to this, you know, and so it's like, you could learn from them and follow that, but I didn't want to do that. I want to do it the other way. And then when you, when you didn't get anything, that would spark some kind of rage with it? Yeah. Well, it just led to depression more so than anything, right? So when I got busted growing dope, um, you know, the, I obviously, I had a little bit of cash and stuff, but all of a sudden that cash flow wasn't coming in. So now I felt insecure. So, and I was attached to the money for significance. So being able to go to the pub and buy whatever I wanted and shout people drinks and buy nice clothes for my girlfriend or for myself or whatever, I became attached to that lifestyle. And the moment I couldn't do that, it was just this constant, you're not good enough. And so then I was just, you know, the, the mind wants to reinforce stories as to, well, look where else you fail, look where else you're not good enough, look where else this happens. And so then it just became a snowball effect. So that kind of broke up my relationship because I was miserable and she was just trying to love me. She was just trying to love me the whole time. She knew I was a good dude. She knew there was there was love in my heart. And yet, you know, um, I just couldn't I just couldn't love myself in that moment. And so ultimately I just pushed her away. I did all this dumb shit. I, I cheated a couple of times. She never found out about that. Um, she listens to this, she will. But um yeah. <laughs> But yeah, you know, and, and then I, I broke up and then we got back together, you know, she was really devastated about the breakup and we got back together and we bought a house together and we recommitted, but I just, I hadn't learned to fix that part of me, you know? And so ultimately there's those self-sabotaging patterns played out again with the bikies and with more drugs. And so, you know, it was like, if you want to talk, if you want to talk fate or whatever, like my soul was saying, you're not learning the lesson. So we're going to teach it to you until you learn and go on the path that you're supposed to be on. Um, uh, like a sheepdog, you know, a sheepdog will guide animals where it wants to go. And if the animals get too rowdy, it will then get vicious, you know, and it's like kind of the, the universe started to get vicious with me because I wasn't listening. Started listening. Yeah. Until I started listening. Exactly. Yeah. Until I started listening and I, and it led to a breakdown. I was in Thailand. I knew I was going through a rough time. I was working out in the mines and I wasn't happy. Um, I was jerking off to porn four times a day using Tinder like it was a, like I was a shareholder and organizing all these dates for whenever I got home from the mines, I'd have all these dates lined up and I'd go out and I'd spend all the money I earned on schmoozing, dinners, you know, whatever, to get laid a few times to then go home and then work my guts out for three weeks and be depressed the whole time. You know, it's this constant vicious cycle. Um, and then I remember I tried to masturbate without porn once and I couldn't get an erection at 27 years old. And I was like, that's, that's, that can't be good. Like that's, that can't be right. I'm 27. Like I should be at the prime of my fucking life and I can't get an erection without a, like a porno playing in front of me. Um, and that was like another slap in the face by the universe, you know? So yeah, that coupled by a few other things that happen. Um, 
I went to Thailand for a wedding and I was like, you know, I'm going to, I'm, I'm not happy. So I'm going to go there. I'm going to do some Muay Thai training. I'm going to go to scuba diving. I had my scuba diving ticket and I'll see the wedding for three days. I see my mates party and then I'll spend the rest of the month on my own. I spent one week on my own and then I spent three weeks with my mates getting fucked up, taking drugs, fucking women on the beach, went to the full moon party, jumped out of a speedboat at like fucking 80 Ks an hour, you know, like just dumb shit. Um, and it was my last night in Thailand and I remember everyone had left and I was on my own. I'm like, I'm just going to go to the beach, get drunk, pick up like I have every night for four, for three weeks. Had two drinks, something switched, like I just got drunk really quick. These 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 were, these were um, voices started in my head. I started talking to myself. I, I, everyone at the beach was judging me. I mean, they weren't, but this is what I was telling myself. You know, no one wanted to talk to me. I was a piece of shit. I was ugly. And the, the realization was that I told myself that I wasn't going to do this in Thailand and I'd just done it for three weeks, like gone to bed at 4am every morning, woken up at eight and then just got fucked up again for a whole day. And I did that every day for three weeks. I lost my credit card. I nearly got arrested by the Thai police for making a false insurance claim. Like just so in three weeks, I just fucked everything up. And there was a kid on the beach that I saw last time I was there and I remember I was drunk, I was having a laugh. He came over, he's selling these lays, you know, like $1 for a lay, you know, he's on the beach trying to make some money. And I can't remember the, the, the minute details, but I ended up being in an argument with him and I was, I was being a dick. I was being a fucking dick to this, like li literally this poor child. Like when I say poor, I mean with no money, trying to make money on the beach at 10 o'clock with all these fucking tourists drinking, um, on his, on his Island, you know? And I'm making fun of him and he got aggressive and I was, I thought it was hilarious because he's getting all angry. And then I said, I can't remember what was said. He went to hit me. I saw it coming. I stepped back or I swore, I moved back and he hit the woman next to me in the face. And I laughed and I thought it was fucking hilarious. You know, that's like the level that I was at basically. Um, and so three weeks later or two and a half weeks later, I'm back on this beach. I'm on my own. I've been there for two and a half hours straight. I can't go back to my room because I'm freaking out. I can't talk to anyone because I'm freaking out. And I'm on the beach and this kid sees, sees me and he comes over and he starts talking to me. The same kid? Yeah, the same kid. And I recognize him and I, I broke. I was like, what are you doing? And, you know, like, because I was a dick. And he just came up and started talking to me as if nothing had happened. And, you know, we spoke for about an hour because I, I couldn't talk. Like I literally was in so much anxiousness. I couldn't get any word. I couldn't talk to a, a man or a woman at the bar or anything. And this kid just came up, started talking to him. And, um, and I, I broke, like I, you know, I, I started asking him about where he's from and what he does and his family. And he lives with his grandma, his mum and dad are gone. He's got two little brothers and si a brother and a sister. And he's out here trying to make money to, you know, pay for the family. And I know there's sub stories and people tell you this bullshit. This kid wasn't lying. This kid wasn't. And so like, I, you know, in my drunken state of like, please redeem me. We went to the shop and I gave him 50 bucks to spend 50. I can't even remember. I think it was 50 bucks. I was like, buy, buy food. Like I just spent $4,000 in four weeks on drugs and alcohol and debauchery, you know, and this kid was just like, no, 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 I don't want your money. And I, I actually think I tried to give him 50 and he wouldn't take it. I reckon he only accepted like 20 bucks. I reckon that's what it came to. And so we're in the shops and I'm like, you buy, buy food now, like buy it. You know, I bought all the lays off him on the beach and I gave him to people. And then we went to the shop and I gave him 20 bucks and I was like, buy whatever you want. And you know what he bought? 20 fucking kilos of rice. Like 
like my that story still fucking breaks me every time like the and you know that was like six bucks or something so i was just like buy buy whatever you want you know and so then he starts buying yogurts and shit because his, his little sister loves these yogurts and his grandma loves this other thing and you know he's buying all this shit and he spends the whole 20 bucks on food that'll probably feed his family for a prolonged period of time i don't know weeks i'd imagine with how much they're eating and i'm like what did you get yourself and he's like oh nothing i don't need it um, i just want to make sure my my family looked after and i just like i'm in the middle of the shops i'm I broke again like you know and i just fucking this kid taught me more about life <laughs> in this like two hours than the rest of my life taught me you know it was it was beautiful and I, I made, I made him buy himself an ice cream or something, a chocolate bar. Like I was like, you're not leaving till you buy yourself something that you want. And I put him on a scooter and, and, and he went home, you know, and I went back to my hotel room and I cried for two days. I just cried for two days at the, at the level of piece of shit that I was, you know? And, and that's when I made a commitment to change, you know? And I, I came home, I quit my job out of the mines. I went back with mum and dad. I got back to laying bricks for, for six or seven months, um, I bought a one-way ticket to Europe and I left, you know, and that started my whole soul searching thing, you know, and I just committed to doing everything different, the opposite of everything I've ever done, you know, and everyone thought I was going to go to Europe and they're like, I'm like, I'm going to write a blog and like, dude, I can't wait to read this. You're going to fucking burn Europe to the ground. Oh my God, the blah, blah, blah. And my very first post was just me talking about how much I hate myself and the amount of messages I got from people that were just like, hey, dude, you were like the life of the party. I had no idea. Like you were just always fun. We, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, because I just, I had to make myself feel good. And so what did I do? I just blew myself up bigger than the shame and guilt I was feeling and just, and tried to have a good time all the time and just constantly ignored this thing. You know, I spent 13 months in Europe. I lived in Buddhist monasteries. I hitchhiked. I trekked. I, you know, I fucked up a few times and got drunk and did dumb shit. Of course, it was a process, but it, you know, I walked across Spain, a thousand kilometers across Spain in a tent. Um, yeah, I just did everything that broke me and, and broke down my identity of who I thought I was. Um, and that was the beginning, you know, I mean, so many comedians commit suicide because, you know, they're trying to give other people joy and laughter and love because their own internal, you know, world is, is not that. There's validation through the responsibility. I mean, it was so, there were so many, because I failed so many times on that, you know, like I committed. So my last weekend in Australia, I snorted two grams of MDMA and um and and stayed awake for two and a half days drinking piss and then my my own farewell party i laid on the couch and vomited 12 times because i was so cooked from the night before like i was just this, no this is now after you cried for two days yeah six months later i was like i'm leaving i'm leaving i already booked my flight and on the last weekend of my time in australia i still bought a, an eight ball of mdma and snorted most of it and got fucked up you know and then flew into munich for Oktoberfest, my first thing I was sober for two days, three days, two days. And on my third day, drank five steins, got so drunk, I shit my pants in my hostel. Like three days into my sober journey, that's what happened, you know? But every time I failed and I felt shit, it just reinforced my drive to, to, to fix that, you know? And, and it was a process and, you know, I went to England and I met family I've never met before and they're all young, so we're all snorting coke and drinking, but it was definitely less than I was, you know? And it was just this progressive, like I went and lived in a Buddhist monastery for a month super clean life first night out stayed in the lakes district met these backpackers went and got drunk took home some spanish backpacker 
threw up in her bathroom after a month of meditating in a Buddhist monastery and becoming all spiritual. And it was like, people go, oh, you've just got it. It was like, no, I fucked up a lot, like so many times trying to fix this addiction, this, this thing that I have inside of me to be loved and seek external validation for it. And, and I fucked up for years trying to fix it. Yeah, so where was the point where you left a lot of that life behind, the cocaine and the drinking, booze, those sort of things? Yeah, so I think there was a, there was a, when I, um, it was probably that time when I slept with that Spanish girl after coming out of the Buddhist monastery and I woke up in the morning, I was a walk of shame back to my place. I was like, what the fuck, man? Like you just spent three or four weeks in a, in what we would deem one of the most spiritual places that, you know, a Buddhist monastery, meditating, having all these realizations, and then you do that. And, you know, I mean, that is still self-shame, which is still a negative thought pattern to have. Um, but yeah, I came back from that, and and that's when things really started to change. And I bought a tent and a sleeping bag, and I started hitchhiking around Europe. And that was, that I needed that level of isolation, right? Like, I couldn't stay in hostels, I couldn't stay with family, I couldn't go couch surfing even because go couch surfing and people just want to get drunk as well i needed to live in my tent for three months walking across europe on my own in countries that didn't speak english not staying anywhere with anyone every night cooking out of my little gas cooker lentils and rice or you know eating fucking salami and bread for dinner like that was the level of isolation i needed to really to to realize that i could do it you know um I slept under bridges and, you know, hitchhiked across the south of France. And I worked in a, um, I volunteered in a retreat center in Italy for two months where, you know, there wasn't really any alcohol and, and I, I purposefully, I'm not having sex with any women. And, you know, cause it's a massive thing of mine. Like I, I call it a gift, call it a curse, whatever. It's like, I, I can get laid anywhere that I go. Um, and that's not me trying to be arrogant. It's just something that happens. And so, and sex has been a massive kryptonite of mine. You know, it's been a massive, massive thing. So I made this this adamantly clear and I did make love to a woman on that, on like the last week I was there for eight weeks, but she was a woman that had, like we'd spent eight weeks learning to get to know each other and I had not done that ever in my life, you know? And so like for me, even though I had sex with a woman, it was probably one of the most conscious intros into lovemaking that I'd ever had, you know, the amount of time that we spent talking and hanging out and how, how much conversation we had around before we even had sex about sex and what were the expectations. And it's like, I'd never had that before. So you even, you've used the term making love for the first time here. Yeah. And I mean, I made love to my girlfriend when we were together for three years, but I didn't even have the frame for that then, you know, it was just like, yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, and, and that, then I hitchhiked from there and that was probably the pivotal moment of just like re realizing that I don't need anything. I can live on, in a tent on my own, walking across the three countries that don't speak English, hitchhike and relying on the generosity of complete strangers and the amount I was, the amount of love I was given as a dirty hitchhiker on the side of the road, like people would give me food and somewhere to stay. And it was like, oh my God, the world is phenomenal. And so that was probably the big pivotal moment that, that, that things have, that things changed. Yeah. I would say this is actually a beautiful safe place and you can get anything that you want to need and, and people are general, generally nice. That really reframed this whole, the world's out to get me and I've got to protect myself. It was like that, that story no longer existed. So two months in the retreat center. And then from there, it was three months in the tent, basically. Um, no, but and yeah, so I walked, 
I don't reckon. I might I might have had a glass of wine here and there. So I did some volunteering again in some other places and and whatnot. But no, did I get drunk? No, no. There was no no getting drunk, um, no drugs. And I walked. Uh, there's a pilgrimage in Spain called the El Camino de Santiago. And um, you know, if you're in Europe, you probably know about it. And I did that. And um, that was a massive moment as well for me. Like a whole month of just walking across the country, like no hitchhiking, no nothing, just camp- like camping and walking every day. Um, and I did have sex with a girl on that as well, but there was, that was probably a two and a half, three month gap between the one at the retreat and that. And, um, yeah. And that was like, again, we, we'd met on the Camino, we'd walk together. It was, you know, this slow, gradual being. It wasn't, it wasn't just this, oh, I can have it now. Do it. It was like, no, do I want it? I'm not sure, you know? Um, and it was just a big repattern. And from that, I just really learned to open my heart more before I had sex, which allowed a much, much deeper connection with these women, which then made me feel less guilty about the sex that I was having. You know, when I was in Adelaide after my breakup, yeah, I was just like fucking anything that moved. And then I felt disgusting afterwards. And it was like, yes, because I wasn't, I didn't even, I did not care for these women. And it was really bad. There were lots of really scary moments for myself in that, you know, like, what if something happens? I'm my parents don't know where I am. I'm, I've disconnected from the internet. I don't, you know, I don't have a, a telephone. I've got my phone, but I don't have internet connection or anything. You know, lots and lots of moments of no one in the world knows where I am. In those moments, was there loneliness? Yeah, so there was loneliness. There was like, you know, what like what if something happened to me over here? Who would know? Who would care? What, what would happen? Would anyone come looking for me? You know, like what's the those types of scenarios. And then I got to the point, like, I also got to the point of like, after about five or six days of just walking and, and, you know, before the trek, this is just walking the streets and camping anywhere. I, I walked across Italy, basically. I hitchhiked across Italy and I was like, that wasn't that hard. Like, what else could I do? And I started to get real kind of masochistic with it. And I was like, what if I gave away all my money and all my possessions and just started with nothing in a country that doesn't speak my language like where could i get to what am i made of you know and so then it became that there's the script kind of flipped on this what's possible and not from a place of i need to prove that i'm capable but more like what what like curiosity it was it, it what triggered was this this curiosity of like who real who really am i and what am i actually capable of you know, could I beg for money? Could I, you know, do what, could I, could I humble myself that much? Could I bring myself to that level of inner hopelessness? And then when I got that, you know, how would I do that? Would, and so I, you know, I used to walk around to, I get to the point, I'd be like, okay, I probably wouldn't steal food, but how could I get food for free? You know, and so then I'd start dumpster diving. And I did that a couple of times in Europe. I was like, wow, there's food everywhere. All right. So then my food sorted and it's like, and it's like my brain just started to rewire with, it viewed the world differently. Um, it's like if you ever read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you know, he teaches his kids like, don't work for money because if you don't work for money, then you're forced to look at things. How can you make money a different way? And it's like, that's what was, that's what happened. By isolating myself so much and putting myself under, I, mean, I had money in the bank. It wasn't like I didn't have money. I had thousands of dollars. But by telling myself, you're not, you're not just going to stay in a hotel. You're not doing that. And committing to the process of like what's possible and living off as, as cheap as I could. You know, I was living off like 10 euros a day, sleeping in my tent, hitchhiking across Europe. It was, it was like, wow, this is, I never thought this would, you know, going from spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars a day on rent and cars and food and 
luxury stuff was like, wow, this is, I've broken myself to a place that I don't think many people have gone to. And it showed me that I now have a choice rather that, so it's now it's, I get to choose rather than it's a default. This is just who I am. I now get to choose how I want to engage with my environment. What was it from that experience that you have brought with you to your life today as you're going back to Australia? So, yeah, I came back and I was really scared. No one knew I was coming back. I, I surprised everyone um, for my mate's 30th. And I was afraid I was going to slip back into my old ways. And to some extent, you know, like I went and caught up with my old footy mates and we got drunk and it was great time, you know. And I got drunk once and I was like, cool, I don't need to do that again, you know. And so I wrote down a list of all the things that I'd cultivated on my trip, you know, like hiking and trekking and walking and yoga and all the meditation. And so I wrote down all these things. And so then I just looked for places in Adelaide, in, in Australia, in Adelaide, my town and my city that did those things. And then I just put myself in those environments again. And it was amazing. It was like, oh, why? Well, guess what? Yoga exists in Adelaide. Acro yoga exists in Adelaide. Meditation retreats exist in Adelaide. You know, it was like, Vegetarian restaurants exist in Adelaide. It's like all of a sudden this whole new world opened up in my own city that I grew up in that I was not aware of. Um, and I met other people and they, you know, they then all of a sudden this whole sexual thing opened up, tantra and open relating and polyamory. And so it was like all of a sudden things just kind of opened up and, you know, then I got into, you know, yeah, the sexuality field and the conscious like tantra and conscious sexuality. And I'd been studying a few books on it because, you know, sex was still a thing. I still, I love women. I'm attracted to women. I like sex. Um, and it didn't have a hold on me anymore, but I wanted to understand that part of me more. And so then I got into sacred sexuality and kind of joined a, a sex cult, which, you know, which was like uh, masquerading as self-empowerment, which, which it is, but it was also, you know, it has its own shadows as everything does. So then I went down that for a couple of years and got into, you know, open relating and polyamory and exploring my shadows around ownership of women and jealousy and insecurity. And, and that was an intimacy with men and like, you know, what, what does that bring up for me? And so I really went all in on that for a little bit as well. And that for me was not the most empowering, but probably the most liberating of like realizing that my sexuality is not something to be ashamed of. It just had a really unhealthy channel because it was coming from a really broken heart. And once I healed the heart, then my sexuality was a really healthy expression because I was no longer doing it to try to get love. Uh, it was more so from a place of, can we share love? Can we be love? And what does that look like? And it doesn't need to be sexual. We don't need to have sex in order to do it. But that also doesn't have to be this taboo, bad, dirty, naughty thing. And so it really reframed my whole relationship to that. And having kinks and desires and fantasies and being okay expressing them because our society uses sex to sell everything. And at the same time, we don't educate, we don't inform, we don't, you know, liberate in that department either, but we use it. And so there's this really kind of fucked up relationship to sex and sexuality, specifically for men, because we're all predators now, you know, a man in his sexual power is a fucking predator. And I know I did it unhealthily, but, um, so I'm not saying that we, we don't have that in us, but it usually comes from a place that's seeking love. And when we learn to love that, all of a sudden our sexuality as men becomes beautiful and, and innocent again. You know, I did some, I did some research a little while ago. Um, so a hundred, what is it? A hundred billion dollars a year gets spent in the porn industry, right? hundred billion, 150 billion, right? Is it billion? Maybe it's, yeah, anyway, 150 billion 
yeah, it is billion, gets spent uh, on human trafficking, which is predominantly sex slavery, right? And 180 billion a year gets spent on prostitution. So that's like $430 billion a year. That's nearly half a trillion dollars a year spent on predominantly men trying to get laid or getting laid. And why do men want to get laid so much? That's the question, right? Why do men want... And for me, it's like, it's one of two things. One, it's a power trip, right? Which is predominantly the sex slavery thing, right? A lot of that, that's all power. The second thing is we believe as men that sex is the deepest form of intimacy we can experience, which is why we are so attached to it. That's why we are slaves to it, because we think that sex is the deepest form of intimacy we can have. We think when a woman has sex with us, that's what makes us feel like we are worth our existence. And I feel like that, that attachment, that, that hold that sex has on us as men is kind of the thing that's destroying a lot of like traditional masculine masculinity and, and that, that that's where we compromise and that's where things destroy us you know men a man can be powerful and have all the money in the world and sex can still be the thing that pulls him undone you know that that was that's a that's an individual journey right because because you've got to find the part of you that doesn't feel loved and that's the part that is yearning for intimacy okay and so for some people that's a sexual thing for some people that's an emotional thing for some people that's you know uh, an inner childhood trauma that's happened or or um you know whatever it is and so it's an individual journey but i mean that's you know, for me, that's why I teach so much, um, like tantric mastery in all my programs, because when a man can start to get that under wraps and all of a sudden sex is no longer this thing that drives him, all the other stuff can then come to the surface, you know? And so usually what's beneath our desire for sex is emotion, right? Some form of emotion. We're trying to get some form of emotional connection. And then when men struggle because we struggle to deal with emotions as, as easy as we should. And so what happens when we are trying to deal with these emotions internal, internally, what that brings up is identity issues. What is it to be a man? What is masculinity? How can I be a masculine man and have this need or desire for this soft, gentle, intimate? And so, you know, the, for me, the process is work on the sexuality, start to get that under wraps because when we start to process that all then then and look at it, then all the emotional stuff comes to the surface. Then we can work on that. And then once we work on that, then we can start to get a clear, really clear picture as to what's the type of man you want to be rather than the type of man you're told you should be. Yeah. Is there no fab? And the reason I'm asking the question, because from my own journey of understanding the addiction I had to sex and how it impacted my life, again, just like yourself, what I began to do was eliminate the things that made me feel good and then pay attention to the thing that comes up for me, the triggers. My want to go towards the things that make me feel good about the process. And of course, that meant retaining ejaculation or having sex, obviously. So is that enough or is there more? I mean, it, it, it can be. And I, I think, you know, what I see with the whole no fat, um, I'm a big fan of semen retention, you know, and that being said, I, you know, I'm part of a really good brotherhood here in the Gold Coast. And you know, I see these young 20, 20 odd year old kids going like, oh, I'm not going to ejaculate. And I'm like, man, you're like, you're like 22, you know, like it, it, 
to, to, to try to retrain, retain too much at that age is also a dog, like everything is a dogma. And so to be like no fat, that's a, that's a dogma just as much as it is. We should ejaculate twice a day. It's like there there's two extremes, you know, and you know, the, the whole Buddhist path is what's the, the middle way, right? Like the, the middle way. And so, um, I think like right now I am, uh, 30 hours into a 48 hour fast. Do I need to not eat for two days? No, my body should be eating in order to consume nutrition. That being said, I learn about myself by fasting. You know, I learn like when I want to eat and there's emotions that come up and there's stuff and I get hangry and I get aggressive. Now I get to look at that part. So, so for me, like the no fap and the semen retention, they're amazing tools to curb uh, a pattern or a behavior that you have ingrained in yourself for an extended period of time. But do I believe that you should know fat forever? No, you know that. No, I do not believe in that. You know, I believe that ejaculation is a really amazing, beautiful thing. And it's how we create life. And it's your relationship to the process more so than the process itself. So big believer in no fat and semen retention, but for periods of time that allow you to observe what comes up for you just like you went through. Um, and I found for myself when I did it, every time I ejaculated, when I, when I said I wasn't going to and I was trying to edge and I was trying to use these tantric practices to circulate and sublimate, I would potentially go down a shame spiral of like, you've got no control, you're just, you're run by your dick, you're a piece of shit. You're... And I'm like, well, that's not serving me either, is it? Like, that's not good. That's not positive. So yeah, I do believe in no fap and I do believe in semen retention, but everything with a pinch of salt, you know, like you have time. And I think this is the biggest thing is like, again, we want the results now. And it's like, can you commit to being a forever learner and, and committing to the process for six months and what happens in six months and then reflecting. And as long as you have the ability to reflect, whether you're fasting on food or women or semen retention or exercise or whatever, like no matter what you're taking away from your life, cigarettes, alcohol, drugs, all of it is a coping mechanism. And once you understand how you work, you can then engage with it how you want, you know? Um, so over Christmas, for example, I, I, I'm pretty good at semen retention. I only really ejaculate with a partner now. Um, not that I have one in my life, but you know, whoever I'm being sexual with. And then over Christmas, some stuff came up. I was back home. Yeah, all this I was doing some energetic, energetic clearing. All this shit was coming up. I was jerking off for twice a day. And I just came I was like, you know what? This is not going to last forever. I know it's not. Something's in my system and it's really trying to come out. And I can't focus and I can't get clear. So I'm just going to commit to this thing for as long as it's needed. And so about two and a half weeks later, that need, that urge died. And after the urge died, I was then able to journal and reflect on what it was that was moving through me, but I couldn't do it in the time because it was just too intense. And so, you know, yeah, I, you know, dance with it how you want and just don't shame yourself through the process. And that's the fastest way to get to the other side of whatever it is for you, I believe. So there's a lot of men stuck in that spiral of shame, alcoholism, the hookup culture, pornography. What is the first step that you'd recommend to begin moving past that painful process in their life oh, you know i was a part of a step 12 step program for a little while and the very first step is to acknowledge to god to yourself and to another human being the exact nature of your wrongs right and so yeah step one is obviously you've got to know that there's a problem before you can fix the problem right so that's always always the first step 
the second step is find people that have gone through what you're going through. And that that's step one. Step one is put yourself in an environment where people have gone through what you've gone through and got out of it or got to at least a, a place that you're potentially aiming for. You know, you don't have to commit to being there, but you commit to like, like I needed the level of insulation, uh, isolation of like no humans, you know, like no humans in a country where no one spoke my language. Not everyone needs that level, you know, and that's why alcoholics join AA. That's why, you know, drug addicts join, join NA. You know, I have issues with both of those programs, but the, but ultimately, you know, cause they still identify as the addict, as the addiction, which I don't agree with, but the system has helped hundreds of thousands of people when I can't deny that. So the first thing after you realize, okay, what are the problems? What are the things that I'm addicted to? What are the, what's my, what are my weaknesses? What are my kryptonites? Okay. We have this amazing tool called a telephone and the internet. And there is support programs and there is information everywhere in every country, in every town, in every city, go find someone and just start, start having a conversation and realize that it's not going to happen in a day. It only takes one day to happen, but it's the journey from this day to that day. Um, so yeah, find, just find people, find people that have done what you've done and, and go hang out with them more. Because if you hang around the people that are keeping you that, that where you are, you, you'll just stay in that loop. And don't get me wrong, I go home and I see them and we go out and we have a good time and but I'm I'm not that anymore, you know? I'm not I'm not that. You're still drinking alcohol? Occasionally, yeah. Very occasionally, you know? I so for me I I'd I'd again I don't the middle way for me, the Buddhist path of like I don't believe in complete abstinence because that's not the reality that's not the life I want. I don't want to be a Buddhist monk. I you know, that's not the path that I'm choosing. But also the other path is not to be on it every weekend. I'm currently training for an Ironman triathlon. It's a 12 hour race, you know, I can't really afford to, and that is, that means a lot to me. And so that means more to me than going out on the piss and taking drugs. And, you know, I'm trained six days a week, twice a day. And, and that purpose that I only want to do the triathlon, the Ironman, because I want to be the best father I can be to this, uh, to my family that I will have soon in the future. And I want to showcase to my parent, uh, to my children that they can achieve whatever they want and I am no one special and I have achieved things that I never thought I would because I committed and that's I, d I don't want to be a hypocrite I don't want to be that part of my father that said do as I say not as I do well you're already an inspiration man to your children you will have and to all the men all over the world and women of course so I am inspired by the journey you've been on and thank you so much for your honesty and the value you shared here. And if the men of the podcast want to reach out to you and learn more about the work you do and the type of man you are, uh, where can they seek you out and find this information? Yeah, so I'm on all I'm, I'm on most of the social media platforms. Um, Instagram, Facebook, obviously the big ones, just Tyron Mowbray, um, you, you'll find me. Uh, I am on TikTok, although I'm not posting as frequently on there, but again, Tyron Mowbray. Um, and I have a, a, a website, tyronmowbray.com. They're, they're the platforms. Check it out. I'm, I'm always on my inbox and DM. So don't, please don't, don't be shy. Send me a message and I'll respond as quickly and as, as purposefully as I can. It's been an honor. Thank you so much and stay in touch. And I look forward to being a witness to all the good work that you continue to do. Thanks, Gavin. It was such an honor, man. I appreciate you. And yeah, it was great. I appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Modern Warrior Podcast. 
If this episode has added value to your life, please share this episode on your social media platforms so that others too can gain the insight, information, and inspiration that they need in order to move forward in their lives. For the time being, stay strong and keep fighting the good fight.